from I've, I've got my notes covering your our faces so so it's all good hey everyone welcome to another episode of the groundlings podcast this episode features a conversation that took place in summer 2021 between dev and documentary producer onuora abua onuora was born in kenya to a nigerian father and rwandi's ugandan mother spent his youth living across central and west africa and now he makes incredible documentaries on african history for the first two minutes of our conversation there are some noticeable audio issues but don't worry quality clears up pretty quickly enjoy here we are everyone with another episode of the groundings podcast um i'm really excited for for this interview i do a lot of interviews on this channel but this one is one I'm pretty excited for because I'm speaking with a filmmaker and actor who I look at as a historian, to be honest, because the documentaries he he produces are, are quite remarkable. Um, but before I continue, I'm actually going to go ahead and just let our guest introduce himself. Anuara? Okay. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me, my brother. Anuara I'm a filmmaker from... Uh, Half Nigerian, my mother's from Rwanda, one in Kenya. Um, I consider myself above all, and I'm an African. So everything I do, filming, acting, and whatever, brings out from a desire to be African. So um, uh, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And, um, you know, <laughs> listeners might not know, but definitely go and check out aeafilms.com and look up AEA Films on YouTube as well. I know I usually put the sort of links and where can people find you and all that at the end of the episode, but I want to make sure I do it at the beginning and the end as well, because I think the content is very hot and very crucial and important. I want people to just make a note of that right now. So to begin, I guess, you know, I really wanted to speak with you a little bit about Christianity in Africa. I know that sounds like a big topic to some and a generalization, but really more so what I wanted to get at was the role of Christianity in in different cataclysmic events in African history and enslavement and in, in colonization, neocolonialism. You know, there's this pesky role of, of the Christian or the Christian missionary that that appears over and over again throughout history, I think. And I wanted to put out just a small disclaimer that I feel is unnecessary, but necessary at the same time. I'm not trying to make blanket bashes at Christianity or Islam or any specific religion in this discussion. I really just want to have a historical talk with you and 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 kind of parse things out. You know, I think to really begin looking at the role of Christianity in Africa, we have to first go back a bit to understand what spiritual or religious structures and institutions existed prior to the arrival of Christianity. You know, obviously there was a diverse array of practices and I'm not asking you to generalize all of those practices whatsoever, but maybe focusing on a few specific areas. Are there some examples of the spiritual systems that existed before Christianity that you would like to point out? Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, one thing which I think is very important since we are in this like phase of COVID and, you know, Me Too and all these different things um, that are affecting everybody, but particularly our African black uh, entertainers and so on is um, just, I want to just start off by saying that Christianity has been an, an attack on our marriage system. Number one, you see, 
if you look at uh, different regions of, of the continent, the, 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 the role of the man and the role of the women um, almost came under attack all from, from the outset, from the arrival of the missionaries. This whole concept of uh, one man, one woman, or whatever. Um, this whole concept of, um, you know, monogamy being a uh, something that is evil, uh, that is wrong. Oh, sorry, polygamy uh, being evil or wrong came really with the arrival of the Europeans. So let's, let's just even look at the way we look at each other, whether your, your spouse, whatever sex you are, you know, the way we look at each other, that in itself is through the lens of the European, right? Prior to the arrival of uh, the European missionaries and so on, as you know, and as many people know, um, we, we had a system of languages. We had a system of, uh, uh, spiritual beliefs that were linked to language, linked to music, linked to dance and so on, and linked also to a very strong culture that is rooted in history, which, you know, if we don't have time, but I'm sure people listening will know enough. And the arrival of Europeans in the form of missionaries and not just Christian missionaries, but missionaries in the form of Islam coming into the western part of Africa, coming to the Swahili coast, they really came in to try and say, no, there's nothing good about what you do. Adopt this new system. You know, and there was a serious attack on the languages. You know, all of a sudden, Swahili, which was a language which for the most part was completely indigenous, now is has adopted Arabic words. Uh, you go to West Africa, the Hausa, the Fulani, the different groups that make up that particular part of the world, their language now all of a sudden is rooted in, at least has a base in, 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 in Arabic, uh, in the Arabic language. So two very crucial parts, the way we communicate and the way we relate to one another. That all of a sudden has come and with the arrival of the Europeans has created a kind of uh, 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 an issue. And those are very general things which if you go into detail you can find different parts but i think the more direct one is the one when you look at it historically which is uh, with christianity in particular is with the arrival of christian missionaries we see a situation where people who are uh, uh, have believed in a certain a certain practices now directly have to question those practices as they look in the eyes of these new oppressors who are in the form of people who are helping the way they um one if you read things fall apart for example one of my favorite parts of the book is right at the end okonkwa who is this great Igbo man this very you know dogged you know not not a perfect man very narcissistic at times you know but very much uh, in love with his culture he finds out that his son has adopted this same religion of christianity and he says rather than see it with my own two eyes. I'd rather kill myself. I'd rather kill myself. And he, and he ends up committing suicide because he feels that this is something which is, is uh, against his beliefs. And I think when you look, I know I'm rambling, but I'm getting somewhere. When, when you look at just over the last hundred years, me particularly being uh, an Igbo man, only a, two generations before me, my grandfather's generation, for example, would have been the first to convert to Christianity. Then my father's generation, the Chinua Achebe generation, these people born in the 30s and 40s, would have felt, would have seen Christianity come in a form that is, uh, you know, there's some challenges, but this is what we have to accept. Then my generation, right? There's 
probably a generation before that because my father had me quite quite late but now all of a sudden when you go to the continent of africa you believe christianity is an indigenous practice an indigenous religion there's a church on every single corner it's not just there it's everywhere in the black world in the caribbean wherever there's a church on every single corner and um, i think the biggest crime of christianity is convincing us that everything that we did prior to the arrival of this religion has been wrong and now we are walking in the light and you know you you start off you mentioned marriage and gender and, and whatnot and i i wanted to shout out um ifi amaliume a a nigerian poet and anthropologist she she actually has written books on gender in ibo culture and and history specifically you know just talking about the various ways that european standards shifted and changed the ibo and african perception of gender sexuality marriage and how how it was also tied to their way like civil society and to the ways of life production mm-hmm. agriculture commerce all of these things were very tied to as you said how we communicate to each other mm-hmm. and so absolutely i i think you you said you were rambling but i didn't think so at all <laughs> i think it all made great sense and for those listening who haven't read things fall apart you know that was a spoiler <laughs> but um i, I i'm curious cuz we we talk about the seeing churches on every corner and of course there's there's ways that christianity has been syncretized or creolized or however you want to put it with the indigenous cultures it's come into contact with whether it's in the Caribbean or in, in in Haiti, you know, in the form of voodoo, in Africa, various places. I'm curious what you make of that. Like, I mean, I know it's a little off topic, but... No, no, where, it's where a the- very question. You're asking about um, my thoughts on how Christianity has almost been uh, camouflaged or adopted in parts where Africans were taken and uh, brought to in the New World, is what you're saying, Yeah. Well, yeah, to an extent. I mean, so you have somewhere like Cuba, for example. Cuba practices African religions almost directly from West Africa. Mm-hmm. Anyone with like a, a specialty in this or even just the knowledge, can it's very easy to see. However, there's also, there's a syncretization that's taken place partially because they were forced to due to slavery, you know, where they'll use Christian names and what whatnot. But yeah. I guess to what extent, to what extent I'm asking is that radical or revolutionary, and what extent is it also sort of, I guess, a consequence? Does that make sense? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's it's, it's all of those things. It's 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 primarily survival. You know, um, your culture. You see, when I see a rap, when I was growing up, and I would see a rap video, or whatever, and you see them pouring liquor on a cemetery, and then I will go and watch. Uh, uh, somewhere in Lagos where I was growing up or something and see them doing the um, pouring pouring a drink into the soil, you know, before they say a prayer, you know, recognizing the dead. You realize quickly that culture lives in you. I didn't realize it at the time, but as you grow older, you realize culture lives in you. It doesn't matter how f- how many generations removed you are from your own society. The culture remains. So, this kind of uh, whether it's Santeria, Vodun, Canomble, whatever, the, whatever the, you call it, you know, it has had to. It is something that's born out of a need to survive and maintain culture. I think ultimately, you put a beat on, put drums on. Every black person 
feels a certain movement. You understand that a European just can't. And these are the, some of the these are some of the ways that, on a spiritual level, we felt the need to praise. There's no way you can look at a Pentecostal church, for example, even now, and compare it to the church that was created or came out of the whole kind of um, what's this guy's name, uh, Constantine, kind of the generations after Constantine with the Hagia Sophia in Turkey, and then moving to the uh, Roman Catholic Church. All those churches, they. they if they looked at the kind of the way black people will create the church now, they'd be like, this isn't what we created. So in a way, everything that's gone with us has had to evolve because of the need to survive, you know, and maintain. But, but there's a need to survive. And when there's a need to survive, you kind of bring in the things that are natural to you, but then you also uh, bring in the elements. So, so for Vodun, for example, there's a saying, I'm sure you're aware in Haiti, that uh, everybody, the people in that uh, Haiti is uh, 99% Catholic, but 100% Vodun. In other words, people can believe in this religion on paper, you know, but what they practice is something different. It's just like us in, in Nigeria, in Africa, all parts of Africa. There's always this thing where, you know, they go to court, for example, you know, a dictator will take, those days when we had dictatorships, they'll put their hand on the Bible, or put their hand on a Quran and swear that they will not do anything bad and so on. They, they, when I was growing up, there was always this joke of if you call a Babalao, you know, or you know, if a, if a priest to come and say swear on this man's leaf or feather, they probably wouldn't do any wrong or they probably won't swear. They'll probably just give up the power because we still believe deep down, no matter how Christianized or Islamicized we are. We still believe deep down in what we believe. And that is the power of our soil, power of our spirit, power of our blood. So just to answer your question a bit more directly, it's survival, you know? Definitely. And I, I think we should kind of pivot to, because we've talked about the, the arrival of Christianity, but I, I, I want to kind of go into that a little bit more, I think, you know, I want to disentangle this notion of the arrival of Christianity as being in Africa specifically as being like a blanket event. Um, because I do know, you know, there's places that predate other areas, right? Like I'm thinking of Christian Nubia as opposed to where, where Christianity was introduced differently than say Nigeria or Ethiopia, right? With vastly different histories. So I'm wondering if you could kind of disentangle this a little bit and, and talk about the actual arrival in a few different areas. Yeah, I mean, look, I think ultimately if we're talking about the arrival of, of any kind of European Christendom, which is the kind of government-style version of Christianity, Christendom. If we're talking about that, we need to pr go back before. And uh, in fact, we're working on a documentary, which we should have just we should have finished shooting, but uh, uh, due to COVID, we've had to postpone. But uh, is is talking about Kemet? Kemet obviously is a a nation that li that exists in the regions that would probably be northern, southern Egypt, northern Sudan, and that kind of area around it today. At least that it's at its at its uh, apex, anyway. And we need to understand the meaning of Kemet, right? Most people would have heard that it means, you know, black people, land of black people, black land, whatever the case may be. And that's that's good to know. But it's important to understand why it was named Kemet. And this is really not my work. This is the work of uh, 
somebody who I'm collaborating with, Dr. Obadele Kamborn of University of Ghana. Uh, not just his, but, you know, he's brought it together in a piece called Why Kemet Matters. And you need to understand why a people 7,000, 10,000 years ago, depending on the calendar that you use, will feel the need to call this place black land. Right? And the whole concept of calling it a black land is because they they talk about all the issues we as African people face against the European. They talk about it for thousands of years, not allowing the Amu in, talking about the problems that would happen when the Amu come in. Amu, of course, meaning non-blacks, Europeans, Ixos, shepherd kings from from uh, what is now called mid, so-called Middle East, Europe, and so on. They're constantly trying to keep these Amu people out. And there's a it's a document um, it's a, um, uh, which is now actually being kept at the University of uh, University College London now. Um, a document where they're discussing how they are trying to get the different groups that live in the in the neighboring regions. I can't say all their names. I don't know all, all their names, but the different groups that named in this that, were, that lived in this region to come together and join forces, almost a Pan African army, to fight and prevent this army from coming in. And the important thing about it is you see, even if you study Kemeti, uh, the history of the Kemetu, is that they, they managed to keep these people out for a very, very long period. Of course, they came in, arguably between the 13th and 18th dynasties, if you different variations of it, came in and occupied them, but eventually were, were, were shoved out again. So there's an idea of these people understanding the enemy. You understand? With their understanding that there's an enemy that looks, that has pale skin, and has a desire to take over everything that we have. It is just their nature. So they understand their nature, right? The nature of the European. And it's only us, unfortunately, that seem to go through this uh, this Jesus image. And, 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 and it's very important to understand, even when you talk about the Bible, you know, you talk about Christianity, you talk about the Bible, you have to understand that the basis of Christianity is the belief in Jesus Christ. Now, if you, if, you, if, you, if you focus on the belief in Jesus Christ, then you have to start saying, okay, this man was here, a real person. And I don't want to go into too much detail because I'm sure I, I will be offending too many people. But if you understand even the teachings of Jesus Christ, when he says on the, uh, when he says on the cross of Calvary that it is finished, it means it's over. But what we call Christianity now, the concept of Christianity that is celebrated by black people, Pentecostal church and so on, is really the teachings of a man called Saul, who later changed his name to Paul, who existed after Jesus Christ died, changed his name when he was walking on the road to Damascus, um, and then had an epiphany, this light, and felt that he needed to change his ways from being an evil tax collector to being a, a man of God. And he goes around preaching all these things. Everything that is, you read in the New Testament is from a man who said he never who in his own words says, I tricked you with gal. This is Ray Hagen's and people like this really study the Bible. You could find out more about, about what, what, what he says. But he's going out of his way to tell people that this is how you should be. Forget what Jesus said. Do, 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 do. Right? All of the teachings that we are practicing now, really, if you even read the Bible, are contradictory not only to the words of Jesus Christ, but are actually you create so many holes in this so-called belief in Jesus Christ. And there's much more. I forgot your original question. Um, please remind me. <laughs> no, you're good. The original question was about the arrival of Christianity. Yeah. 
Yes. So yeah. So yeah. Okay. So, so what I was alluding to when I mentioned Kemetu is to understand that Christianity in itself as a system would have just been one of the many forms that the Amu, which the Kemetu warned us about thousands of years ago, the Amu would have employed in order to try and penetrate. They tried to come in through uh, conquest, through peace, through war, through so many different things. And of course, the region that they are in is is inevitably where Christian Nubia eventually formed out of. Christian Nubia comes years and years after the uh, the really the decline of, of ancient Kemet. We're talking about... Uh, the period when Alexander has already come in and taken over a land which is really is indefensible. It's not as powerful as it is. You even hear of Tahaka, Nubian, 25th to 26th dynasty, who goes and helps so-called Christians. You know, So clearly in, in a situation like that, you have a, a, an acceptance of Christianity that is kind of political, um, kind of more of a, uh, you know, um, and even to use the word acceptance, I don't want to be disrespectful. It's not really acceptance, but a, a, an understanding of, of humanity through the Christian system is adopted there. And that is very similar to an adoption of Islam that comes into parts of northern, northwestern Africa. You see, when we talk about the Hedra, and, and I'm sorry if I go to, from one place to the other because I think it's all linked. If you understand the concept of the Amu, what the Kemetu were talking about. Coming into, after the Hedra, this is the period after um, Muhammad, the, the prophet, dies. You have a, a struggle for power amongst his closest, and then eventually you have people trying to go and conquer the world for Islam. They manage to get very close to it. They come into North Africa, and they, are, they would have gone all the way down into down to the western coast of Africa had it not been for the strong systems of spirituality, but also armies and, and force that we have that prevented them. What goes and then happens is they start to migrate quietly and slowly twist themselves into the system. If you, I talk about this in my documentary. When you, the empire of Wagadu is existing, one of the most powerful kingdoms that ever existed, certainly in the world, but we'll just say in Africa, uh, didn't adopt Islam. When the empire of Mali starts to climb about, they start to adopt Islam bit by bit from those same immigrants, those little neighbors that were living on the periphery of their society. And eventually, in the same way that the Amu will always do, the way the Amu will always do, which our ancestors in Kemet warned us about, they find their way into the into into the to, to, to the minds of the leaders. They accept Islam. So that by the time you get to the Empire of Songhai, which is much later, and we're talking really in the we're talking Mali is really from the 12th century AD, um, going to about 13th for 14th century AD. Then by the time you get to the to this Empire of Songhai, which is later, Empire of Songhai is completely Islamic. So then you see a domino effect of people doing the same thing that the 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 uh, uh, the followers of uh, Muhammad did, going from Mecca into North Africa by conquest. You start to see these these now newly Islamized African people going and doing this same conquest into West Africa, Central Africa. You hear of the uh, Fulani attacks that are go that were going on. They came into Hausa land. They came into different parts of northern Africa. So now when you look at the map of, of, of Africa, you can always you, you can see the geographical split in the middle going north of Islam. 
you can see it. It's almost like it's, 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 but historically it happened gradually, right? That's Islam. With Christianity, of course, you had the foundation that existed in the region that would have been uh, Kemet, Christian Nubia being one, Ethiopia being another. These are people with a foundation of their own version of a Christianity, their own version, if you will call it Christianity. Then you start to see much later, after Islam has completely come in, you start to see the moving in of the missionary, the missionary society, which really comes from a desire to find out not just to civilize the African people, but to find out about the riches there. Because at the same time, these missionaries are being financed by Belgium, by England, by France, and so on, to come into West Africa. They are well aware that their travelers have tried. These explorers, René Caillé and the rest of them, people like that, that have come in to try and find places like Timbuktu that they'd read about in books and so on they've realized that these are, this is a good route because they come in peace. Missionaries died on their way in. But the information, the invaluable information of trade routes, sea routes, how do we get, to, how do we get there? How do we get there? How do we link from this place to this place? Provides an, source, is an invaluable source of information for the colonists, what will later become the colonists, to say, okay, so if I come there, I know that these people in their minds are already believing that we're good people. Right. We've already taken their words, you know, we've taken words like chuku in the Igbo language, which is a, a co- concept of the supreme creator. And then instead take chi and so and other, other different spiritual, uh, spiritual words that we use. And we say, OK, no, they all mean God. Instead of the African way, which is to say that, no, one means the spirit of this, your own personal spirit, like the car and the bar system. In, uh, in, in ancient Kemet, like in the Adinkra, I said the Adinkra, the uh, Akan spiritual system where you have the similar two different types of spirits and so on. So they go and do that to us. So we're just mesmerized by all this. Like, so my God, so all, the, so from your, your land in Europe, that place that you people lived in in Europe, you have the same sort of belief as us? Oh my God, of course we'll accept you. And there's numerous examples. Go to South Africa, go to Southern Africa. Go and see what these Livingstons and people like that were able to do just by, you know, Stanley and all these people, just by making people believe that, yes, we're all the same, when in reality you don't practice it. It it makes me think uh, Walter Rodney notes this very, very well in his history of the Upper Guinea Coast, as well as how Europe underdeveloped Africa. Um, And you have mentioned it before when we spoke previously, the, the African custom or it, it was customary for Africans to welcome visitors and welcome strangers in most places. And so in many ways, you know, they were welcomed amicably, of course, often by maybe by the nobility, you know what I mean? But nonetheless, it was very much sort of being able to exploit this amicable welcoming that took place as well. And then mm-hmm. once you can exploit that and, and mix it with your sort of belief system and spiritual system, knowing that these people their civil society and daily lives are extremely tied to their spiritual system. It's almost like a one-two punch. You know what I mean? It's very much like an exploitive one-two, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I was going to say, I just I like that you brought up the missionaries, um, and you kind of brought us up to that point because that's really what something I wanted to speak with you about as well. Because I think that I don't think people fully understand one the scope of like the missionary enterprise across the continent. 
I just don't think they understand that these people were, uh, as Dr. Boom Nielian's son would put it, paid mercenaries Mm-mm. who would have went across the continent, like you said, creating maps, trade routes, um, pretty much laying the groundwork for what would later be this boom of enslavement that, you know, built the entire European world. So could you speak a little bit, maybe for specifically for people who are not familiar with it, when, when we talk about missionaries in Africa, quote unquote, what do you mean by that? And what do we, you know what I mean? Like, what is just sort of like an overview of what that entails? Yeah, um, I, I think also, if, if you don't mind, let me just go back just a little bit into understanding Christianity in itself and what it's meant for. Uh, or rather not what it's meant for, but, but how it, uh, it became what it became. When we talk of Christianity, really, we're talking about the church that was established in Turkey, Constantinople, what is now Istanbul at the Hagia Sophia, which eight or so hundred years later became the Roman Catholic Church. And then, of course, you know of a man called Martin Luther, who was so disgusted with what the the leaders of the church were doing in terms of uh, all the stuff that you see the Catholic Church doing now, you know, all the scandals, you know, similar things. So he goes and writes out all these things that these people should use to change. And of course, you start to see a shift. Now this Catholic Church, which had gone from Turkey to Western Europe and spread all across Western Europe and even touched North Africa, these saints, these saints and so on that are celebrated, uh, St. Moritz and so on. Then you start to see a split. Of course, you know that the big split related to Christianity in Africa is the one that came through Henry VIII. Of course, you know the story. His split because of uh, a divorce creates the Church of England, somewhat the Anglican movement, which is really the chief financiers they, along with their offshoots with the Friary Church and so on in Belgium and France, the similar kinds of churches, who then go and send these women, mostly, into Africa, who give them this sense of belief and understanding that your ways are, are, are correct. Now, keep in mind, what is happening parallel is in the Iberian Peninsula, the, 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 the Pope is convincing or the, 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 the deacons of churches are convincing people that it is okay to reduce to servitude all infidels. In other words, if you are not a Christian, it is all right to enslave them and by default colonize them. You are superior to them, contrary to the teachings of Jesus Christ, obviously. So this, all these things are happening. Different versions of the church are created some with an ideology that is relatively pure and another that is purely commercial. And so when they start flying, going all around the world, and especially into West Africa, into Africa generally rather, because again, they don't really, they touch the parts that Islam hasn't touched. That's really what they're doing. They're not really concerned with parts that is because Islam has a very strong hold over them. So they know they can't mess with that. So they go to the people on the peripheries of society coast west african coastline all these small small kingdoms create and and it's and and because we are a people desmond tutu saying we bend down to pray we had the land they had the bible by the time we opened our eyes they had the land we had the bible and it's been like that for the last two or three hundred years so we 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 when we when we look at even the 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 role of missionaries Aside from them being people that, you know, 
went through tremendous amounts of risk to, to convince us, in some cases beat us, out of our religion. Us giving them the, the license to do that, of course. Who went through tremendous risk to try and establish bases in places so that we will never return to our heathen ways. Their role is profound. Probably more profound than the colonist. Probably more profound than the enslaver because the enslaver, you know he's an enemy. Yes, he will convince you once you, you have nowhere else to go. Once you see your son being or being sold off, once you see your wife being raped or castrated or whatever, or your husband castrated, when you see that, you, you almost just say, one day I'll get you, but I will leave that for my ancestors, my descendants to do. But the missionary's role was so subtle because they came in peace. How many people, how many soldiers did they use to colonize all of northern Nigeria, northern Mali, those regions? How many soldiers? They had a system of colonization called indirect rule. Indirect rule meaning I will convince your king because I've placed, after we defeat you in the battle, I send all my troops away. I employ you as your people, as my troops, through the help of a king that I've stationed there. Don't forget, Africans didn't just allow these people in to come and colonize, right? The missionaries had already identified people in royal circles who are cool. These people, look at this role in, da, in Dahomey, for example. I talk about it in my documentary, Dahomey and Vodou. Behazan was one of the kings who said, I am not tolerating this. Fought these French people. Fought them, fought them, fought them. Eventually he's defeated. And just like Jaja of Opobo, just like numerous other kings of, across West Africa, he is exiled. And who replaces him is a relative. We see this happening even today. Those relatives then say, you know what? We'll work with you. So the European eventually doesn't need more than a handful of Europeans to run the whole country. So the role of missionaries is invaluable. Look at the schools that they, the school systems that exist in, in, not now, but certainly at colonialism up until the time I was a child. I'm in my mid to late thirties, right? As a child, the top schools that you went to are all with a missionary foundation, saying something, saying this, saying that. Those schools are there for a reason. They are the top schools for a reason because they were established by the missionaries. This is why a lot of us have a first name or at least a second name that is European. Whether you are in a quote-unquote French-speaking African country or not, or English, you have a, an English name somewhere because of this concept of you must be Christianized. What is your Christian name? The role of missionaries, my brother, is one that we should, if we can, if we can only be wary of how subtle these people were. It will probably allow us to see how subtle they are in going about still with this neo-colonialist uh, way of looking at things. Because, you know, there's also something that's very important when you understand the concept of capitalism. You see, if you are truly studying the word of God, the so-called word of Jesus, and we really, when we talk about the word of, word of Jesus, we're talking of only a few books in the New Testament. This is a man who lived with the poor. He told them, he says to them, sell all your things and follow me. Sell all your, 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 everything that you have that is of value, sell it and come and follow me. This is a man that walked around with no shoes. There is no more socialist mindedness, if that's the word, than that. Yet these people felt the need that, okay, I'm not, not only am I 
going to go against what Jesus would have done in a situation like this, which is if I see a, a woman who is going astray, i.e. an African, instead of stoning him to death or her to death, let me just leave them to do their thing. I don't judge. If you judge, you, if, if you judge someone else, you too should be subject to judgment. These missionaries came and directly opposed that. But of course, as we're reading their book, we are looking at it through the lens of how, how does this relate to us? And unfortunately, we fell for it hook, line, and sinker. You know, I mean, Jesus was quite literally flipping tables because of exploitive practices mm-hmm. within, inside the temple, inside the church, right? So I, I, you, you hit the nail on the head with that. And I wanted to say the... <clears throat> You, what you referred to, I wanted to name it is, and I don't, I'm not good at Latin, but Dom Diversas, I believe, Diversa. is in 1452 when Pope Nicholas authorized basically the re- reduction of, as they called it, pagans and others to perpetual servitude. And that word perpetual is also important because that's how people are then born into servitude or aka slavery, right? Which is something highly unique to European slavery as well. This notion that 10 generations down the line, you are still enslaved. Usually when it comes to slavery as prisoners of wars, for example, this is this is not the case. Maybe in instances across Africa, Asia, Latin America, this is, you know, so I just wanted to point that out. Um, mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, I was just going to add something. Like, I want to be very careful. Missionaries, missionaries in particular, their role is destructive. It's one of the most, it's the most destructive role because some of them were ignorant about what they were doing. You talked about 1452. 40 years later is when we see uh, so-called uh, uh, this voyage with the man Cristobal Colon arriving in, in the new world with the idea that anybody who doesn't believe in what we believe uh, can go ahead and be reduced to servitude, be enslaved, perpetual enslavement. Now, in his mind, in the, the mind of a Cristobal Colon, Christopher Columbus, it is very much all about capitalism. Let's make money. It doesn't matter. Now we know that we can, we've been given permission to do whatever we want with these people. But the missionaries, some of them were just very ignorant. They were given a set of teachings and they fell for it. Many risked their lives and died just to, to ensure that those teachings were brought to the minds of the African people. But what did they do themselves? And this is the contradiction. What did they do themselves? Kidnapping small children as they ran away from their village, flogging them, telling them, do not follow in the ways of, ways of your parents. This is what they were doing in villages all across West Africa, all across Central Africa, flogging them. Right? Even the elite, the so-called bourgeoisie of, of Africa that eventually went to to, to lead us in Africa, certainly in the Caribbean too, I'm sure. Those people were a creation of the missionary system. You see, there are two classes of people. There's the African elite, and then there's the indigenous, there's the African sort of European elite, and then there's the indigenous elite, right? They go in there and they say, we create, these are the people we can trust, these are the people we cannot trust. They destroy the healing system, all the medicine. It's so, it's so ironic because, you know, Sorry, I'm I'm digressing, my brother. But around where I, I was I've, I've, in Lagos, where we live, around the area where my parents live, is a tree they call neem tree. Neem, N-E-E-M. Neem tree is a tree that's been growing there for God knows how many millennia. Which we, we, we there's no way of knowing. 
This tree, you take the leaf off this tree, put it in tea, and it can literally help you with bowel movements, fever, malaria, and all these different things. But because these same European people, these missionaries were dying of malaria, we as African people are convinced that malaria is something that kills us, even though these mosquitoes are there. I'm I'm using it, it, it might seem like a digression, but I'm trying to illustrate a point, which is to understand how uh, destructive these missionaries were, even though they were acting in ignorance. So the, the lesson here is, regardless of whether it's in ignorance or in, in, the, in the service of uh, capitalism, when the European people came in with their form of religion, in any shape that it came in, with their system of missionaries, it was ultimately for the destruction of black civilization. And I'll let you finish, my brother. Don't worry about digressing, especially if you're making a great point. I mean, the ignorance, you know, something I point out, people don't know Christopher Columbus literally had sex with animals. Is documented. He wrote about it himself in his journal. So he's looking at natives, indigenous people telling them they're savages and him and a llama are getting it on in the back of a boat. This is not false. This is literally well documented. And so the the backwardsness of European living to me and, and you know all the baggage that comes with that absolutely mm-hmm. destroyed um black I'm looking right now at a copy of the destruction of black civilization, you know, by Chancellor mm-hmm. uh Williams, classic book of course. And you mentioned the missionaries, the missionary schools, you know, I, I don't know if listeners know, but Africans were told if you didn't have a Christian name, quote unquote that you couldn't even attend these schools and and that you wanted to attend these schools because you would get uh, small roles in the colonial administration or at a colonial outpost or whatever it may have been. So not only do they establish these missionary schools, but they force the Africanness out of people in these schools. And then there's also, and the last thing before I transition to another question, but there's something to be said, and, and you're actually one of the first ones who in a, another interview that I did with you that brought this up, but even in this this Christian notion of forgiveness, if you believe in Jesus, all your sins are washed away and forgiven, how that is used to really justify and sow in the seeds for so many of the abuses, violences, exploitation, uh, destruction that, that Christian missionaries and Christians caused on, to, to Black people, you know, this notion that you can go and enslave an entire race. You can colonize an entire continent, force a diaspora onto those people of also enslaved and colonized people and still feel this forgiveness from who or from what the question, you know what I mean? It's a forgiveness without accountability, <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. so I think, you know, just on sort of this ideological level with that operating, you can understanding that helps to understand the actions of these, of these missionaries as well. I think, mm-hmm. I think you've kind of already touched on really my next two questions. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of wanted to point out a lot of the things that were introduced to African culture and society through Christianity. One of two of those things being flogging or, or sort of physical violent punishment and incarceration, the introduction of prisons and reserves and concentration camps onto the continent, along with sort of violence are two examples that come to my mind. Um, but I was just wondering if there's any sort of current lasting vestiges that you see as a direct connection between the two. I know that was a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you, you made a very good point there, which, uh, 
There are, I mean, there's, there's so much. I mean, when you, when you think about uh, on the continent, what we call African nations, the 54 or 55, however you look at it, nations that make up Africa, every single one of them is dictated to by a spiritual system or so that comes from outside of Africa. So just by default, everything that we are operating is alien to us, which is why it's not working. We can go to court uh, and talk about, we can go and wear the white wig and the black uh, cloak like the barristers and solicitors in the United Kingdom, wherever, and go and argue cases using my Lord, using Latin and so on. And then in cu- and, and say, find somebody guilty, but still not practice that same law and put that person in jail. Likewise, we can go to church and using that same concept of uh, that same concept of um, uh, if you are in Christ and you are born again, all your sins are forgiven. In other words, perpetual for, for the entire existence that you have, you are saved, and so therefore there is nobody that will ever be able to see do God will never see wrong in your eyes. That is a concept we live with daily, because our people are so convinced that. By going to Mecca once a year, by going to uh, giving t- 10% of our stolen money to, the, to different churches, churches that we own, churches which educated us, right, through the colonial system, that these, are, these things are going to ultimately help us become better, not become better people, but it's going to just almost pay forward towards our, 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 our salvation, if you will. Never mind our morals. Right, and I, and I say that I know I know it's not quite the question that you asked, but uh, we, we 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 put people in prison now. The concept of prison, not this kind of collective uh, understanding of uh, two wrongs don't make a right, or this collective understanding of negotiation, of understanding how again I, I allude back to things fall apart when two people were when when a, an innocent girl was killed by a neighboring village. They sent, rather than go directly to war, they sent a council of elders to say what? Let's go and negotiate. They sent their best. They sent Okonkwo and a couple of others. Go and negotiate with that other village. That other village, by now is the name of the village. These are fictional villages, but you get the general gist. They went and discussed with these people and said to them, we must, for compensation, if we, unless we go to war, you must give us a virgin girl and a young boy. Now, in the European sense, that just sounds, what do you need them for? For them, it was compensation, a life for another life. Not to say we're going to kill them, but for us to adopt them. Now, what ends up happening is this, to avoid war, they give these two people. One of them, the young girl, gets given to the man who has just lost the female. And then they, are, they give the boy, the young boy, to Okonkwa who negotiated it. Not for them to treat disrespectfully, but Okonkwo adopted the boy as his son. Where do you see that going on on the continent? Now, you hear of all these uh, uh, different different kid, you know, killings and so on. These political killings and uh, uh, not just political killings, but even just domestic, just little. This this we've lost our sense of human life. The value is gone, and it's very particular because this period of Okonkwo's history. It's only a hundred, maybe. We're talking about the, the, the conquest of the Igbo land was 1910, 1915, that period. 
We're talking of a hundred years ago. This is how people thought in the village. Now in the village, people will kill you for land. Brothers kill each other for land in that same Igbo land. The only common denominator is the interference of the European, the European missionary in particular. And this is the same son, which by the way, when Okonkwo, spoiler again, Anyway, I want to, let me not do it again, uh, but you get the gist. <laughs> I uh, I want to encourage all of our listeners to go read Things Fall Apart. It's uh, definitely a classic. Um, I only have two more questions for you because y- you kind of answered questions within questions as we were talking, which usually does happen. But I want to kind of talk about Christianity's operations today and this missionary enterprise today. As we know, there's this neo-colonial system which has installed stooges all across the continent, all across the black world, who do the bidding of, of the West, of the colonial masters, of the white people, of the Christians, et cetera, et cetera. And in many ways, they're propped up by the church and the missionary enterprise today. And so it's almost hard to imagine knowing the history of Christianity on the continent that there would be such a massive missionary enterprise there today that you would still see churches. You know what I mean? Like you would think in your head, why are we not ridding ourselves of all of these buildings or turning these into community centers or something? I don't, I don't know. But um, so I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit of, of your thoughts on, on today's, the missionary enterprise. You see, I don't see it as though the missionaries, the missionaries have done their work. There's certainly missionaries right across continent that still exists, nowhere near the the numbers that existed. Because of this new offshoot, this survival thing that we mentioned that happened with our sisters and brothers in the the Americas, this adoption, this for survival um, sort of versions, these survival versions, these these, these, uh, neo-missionaries, if you will, who are creating churches for uh, financial benefit. I think Jamaica, they said, is um, it's one of the biggest crime places in the world. But there's a, ch- I think, it has more churches per square kilometer than anywhere in the world. I think Jamaica has one of the highest homicide rates, I believe, specifically Thanks. crime in general. But I oh, think homicide is is where it tops the list. And then also, conversely, has uh, uh, more churches per square kilometer. Now, certainly. If Nigeria was as small as Jamaica, I'm sure they would have more. But let's just look at that and try and understand what that means. It's very simple when you understand that we, as, a, as African people, we live in a society now which, okay, the Europeans have physically gone and they've taught us about this capitalist structure, this way of making money and justifying it through the Bible because this is what they've been doing for six, 700 years doing whatever they needed to get money and justifying it with the Bible. We've done our own version now, but we are now oppressing our own people. You see, the churches that exist are not, the popular churches are certainly not the, even in the black world in America, in the black world anywhere, right? It's not the traditional churches, the Roman Catholic, the Anglican, the Presbyterian. It's this charismatic Pentecostal churches who have a way of identifying as African people, not only phenotypically, but also emotionally, the singing, the clapping, the dancing, the different variations. There's a church we have called the Sele Church. They call it Sele White Garment Churches, where these people wear white and white. It's a Christian church preaching Jesus, but completely, when you look at the kind of old Ifa system, it's similar to that. They don't wear shoes. 
You know, you have churches where they are predominantly in water. I mean, look, there, there is so much that we have adopted, but the concept, the, 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 the concept of the, or rather the, the, the backing of Christianity in the old world, which eventually became what colonized and enslaved us, is the same that we are practicing now, except now, when we look at it, it's not the Europeans doing it, it's us doing it to ourselves. So I look at it more, the missionaries have, the Europeans have gone and they've done their work. They've left enough of a foundation and we've just evolved. We've just evolved. We've just uh, uh, meshed that within our own culture to create another system that is also of oppression. But the root, ultimately, where is the root? Comes with the European missionary. So we see it every day. We see it in every in every walk of life. And Christianity is not the only one that should suffer. And certainly we see this in Islam. Um, when, when, when leaders are spending millions to go to Mecca once a year, when, um, they're doing, they're creating big cathedrals, uh, uh, in, in Ivory Coast, the late president Hufwet Bwani in his hometown built this massive church. For what? One of the biggest churches that was built in Lagos, they called it the Rock Cathedral, right? House on the Rock Church, the Rock Cathedral. At the inauguration, uh, sorry, at the, uh, opening of the, uh, church, they invite Tony Blair. What does Tony Blair have to do with the opening of a church in Nigeria? Is he a Christian? Whether he's a Christian or not, what does he have to do with it? So it's moved away from this kind of, at least this uh, European, these European churches, these kind of European churches that Catholic and so on, to now this whole thing where it's all about capital. And again, a hundred years ago, this capital was irrelevant. This money was irrelevant. So this is what the legacy of the missionaries. And, and I, I, I guess the only place where I would differ with you a little bit is that I think that the the European hand or the Western hand is still very deeply involved. But I think a lot of it has shifted to the U.S. Um, many of oh, the no, major churches. Let me, let, me even, let, me even, let me even add to what you're saying. It's, there's no question that their hand is there. Their hand doesn't. It's just like a, a masked hand. It's a black glove with a white hand inside it. It's not, the, the root of it is there, 100%. Why is Tony Blair showing up for the opening of a church in Nigeria? Of course their, their hand is there. Their hand doesn't go anywhere. Right. So I'm completely in agreement, in agreement to do with that and that, yes. And, 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 and it's not just in Christianity, as you know, it's the, because again, you look at the leadership that exists in Africa now, comes a product of this Christian missionary school system and education. A Robert Mugabe, who is seen as a great Pan-Africanist, was educated in those types of schools. Achimota School, the great school in Ghana, is created by the so-called Christian missionary slash colonialists. These are still to today, by the way. I'm not sure if you're aware. There's a case going on in Accra right now. Some kids with locks are trying to get into this Achimota School and are not allowed to. They're told that that is not their style. Meanwhile, the headmistress who has refused to allow them in has a weave. Of course it's still there. They're still there. The problem is we are looking at each other and not seeing them. Whereas if you peel back a little bit, it's not them that we're seeing. It's the white inside them. And this is why my brother, Dr. Cambon, always talks about this concept of re-Africanizing with a K. Everybody that is black in this world is born with an imaginary white person in their mind. And it is up to, it is up to them to rid themselves of that black person. 
to re-Africanize with a K. It is up to us. But the truth is, many of us don't even realize that we have it. Mm-hmm. I want viewers can also go and check out. There's a, a short documentary on YouTube called Sodom and Gomorrah Exporting Homophobia by a friend, a comrade of mine, Nampa. It talks a little bit more in depth than we have time to today, uh, but about the exact same stuff we're talking about with specifically looking at Uganda and how uh, Western churches are helping to fund these churches in Uganda that propagate homophobia, sexism, uh, capitalist exploitation, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think listening to me and Anuora's conversation today, you know, that's a, a great documentary as well to kind of add to it. And I guess I really have went through all my questions for you. One point I wanted to make earlier, but I kind of missed it, was I think a lot of people tend to view this history as you had the state, the European state, the imperial states acting, and then you had missionaries acting on their own, which is the case at some points. But in reality, they were both arms of the same imperialism and they were working hand in hand, often you know, being missionaries were funded by taxpaying dollars. They they had like the London Missionary Society was was yeah. half of the people in there were governors and, and and different positions in the the English you know Parliament and whatnot. So uh, I just wanted to throw that out there that we really shouldn't even to me look at them as separate entities, but entities that kind of necessitate each other's existence to this day in in many mm-hmm. ways. Um, but did you have any? closing remarks or anything that you wanted to say as we sort of uh, wrap up? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for having me on. I uh, appreciate you bringing me on. These these are things which, you know, we, we've said a lot today. I've said a lot. And what I what I hope that the listeners take at the very least is, is, is to understand that none of these things, as you just said, are as cut and dry, black and white as that. They're, they're little, they're layers, numerous, numerous layers, and within those layers, even more layers. But ultimately, when you look at it very, very clearly, what you see is the arrival of these things, whether it be Christianity, whether it be Islam, whatever the case may be, the arrival of these outside forces has a, had a been forewarned by our ancestors who existed in the Nile Valley, but b have done nothing but move us further and further and further away from what is uh, quintessentially African, what is intrinsically African, what is what makes what is in our DNA. It moves us. And with every day, as we move into this globalized world, this globalized uh, society, we become even more and more distanced. This, 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 this idea that somehow we're returning to Africa, yes, I think ultimately we will never return to the Africa of old. But mentally, we are falling into the same traps that our ancestors had set before us. And that's why it's the duty of some of us, particularly in the film world, to try and focus our energy on trying to, to, to not necessarily right the wrongs, but be proactive and go and talk about the whys, the why this is the way it is. Not say, let me counter it. You know, you, 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 cinema is a very powerful tool. You know, in the same way we talk about missionaries coming and being and painting this image in Africa, being backed by their governments back home and different private uh, societies of really wealthy people. Cinema, particularly the American film system, the Hollywood system was built on the same thing. 19, is it 16, 1915, 
but D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation comes out. A box office hit. Tarzan and all these movies start following. Box office hits. The image of Africa is constantly being attacked in those films. It's in those same jungles. It's in those same jungles that you will find the medicines that will cure COVID. But not just that. It is in those same jungles that Europeans are running to, have been running to, to get medicines that will have ultimately gone into the pills that we consume today. We are so far off where we need to be, my brother. So I hope you got that. Absolutely. We got all that. Thank you. Thank you for those great closing remarks. Before we go real quick, tell people where they can find you and find your work. I did just uh, a few days ago, sign up for a subscription to Quelly TV to look at not just your work, but a lot of more uh, amazing work. So if you could just shout out a little bit, maybe where people can find you and your documentaries. Uh, my documentaries now are almost exclusively on Quelly TV and a few other sites, but Quelly TV, K-W-E-L-I dot TV, uh, run by uh, Deshana Spencer, African lady from America. Uh, you can also find some of my documentaries on YouTube. AEA Films is the YouTube channel. We've got two more coming out in the next uh, like week and a half. By next end of next week, they'll be out. And then um, we've also got uh, a few more documentaries we're working on. We're working on a film, a documentary called uh, Kemet, KMT, where we're going to be filming across uh, North Africa. And, um, uh, we're going to be filming a documentary on Senegal, actually on Islam in Senegal, the Bayefal kind of sect of Islam, this kind of uh, very kind of indigenous version of, 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 of Islam in, 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 in West Africa. So... Uh, in terms of uh, social media, I don't really have any personal ones. I have a, um, I have a, we have an Instagram AEA Films on Instagram, Twitter, I think, and then um, I've, I'm on Abibi Tumi, A B I B I T U M I. Um, Abibi Tumi is an African-owned and run social media website. That's the only place you'll find a profile of me. Failing that, www.aeafilms.com. You can always uh, get in touch with me there. All right. Well, this has been another episode of the Groundings Podcast. Um, thank you once again for coming on. Listeners, make sure you go and check out all of his work. If you like this podcast interview, make sure you subscribe, share it, comment, tell a friend, all that good stuff.